0: Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded. I usually don't get very excited about the latest Washington memoir. But there's this new book out that is different. Because it's a book I've been waiting for for a long time. It's called The World As It Is. It's by a guy named Ben Rhodes. He was a deputy national security advisor and a speechwriter for President Barack Obama. And he helped shape the administration's policy on Syria a place I covered for years. A country where hundreds of thousands of people have been killed by their own government and are still being killed by their own government. And until recently, it seemed like the U.S. was standing by and doing nothing. Every time I went into Syria, I was asked the same questions. What was the U.S. going to do to stop the killing? And if they weren't going to do anything, could they just tell us why? Now, reading this book and talking to Ben Rhodes, I know what people in the administration were thinking. I know how decisions were made in the White House, how sometimes they were deliberate, and sometimes they happened almost by accident. I know that Ben and some other young idealists in the administration really wanted the U.S. to do something, anything. But eventually, he realized... That the world as it should be is different from the world as it is. And in that way our stories are alike. Two Americans who believed a little too much in our abilities to change the world. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ACT, a flexible CRM trusted by millions worldwide. Manage customer contacts, track sales opportunities, and create professional marketing campaigns, all from your laptop or mobile device. Call 888-643-6400. Mention promo code NPR for a free Amazon dot with your purchase of ACT. Or visit ACT.com slash NPR to sign up for a free 14-day trial. ACT. Growth made easy. The thing some people forget about the war in Syria is that it started with the Arab Spring. It's a wave of democracy protest in the Middle which East which was literally tens of millions of people, mostly in their 20s and 30s, out in the streets protesting across
1: the Middle Popular East, is the region.
0: calling for dictators to step down. — They feel emboldened tonight, like they're on the cusp of taking down this dictator. — This happened in Tunisia, First, Egypt, president. Libya, Protestants Protestants Yemen, Protestants Yemen, Bahrain. Protesters even used the same slogan. The people want the fall of the regime. The two dictators in Tunisia and Egypt were forced to leave. And protests eventually spread to Syria. We see a group of maybe 30 protesters walking very fast down a dark and narrow alley. You can hear them chanting in the background. We run to catch up. Then we hear the cars. The activist says that's a warning sign. The security forces are coming. The protesters surge back toward us. Everybody's running down the street. Everybody's running like crazy. We're leaving. Oh. Syria's uprising started when four teenagers were arrested for painting that slogan, a Yarid de skape nizam, on the wall. And adding, It's your turn, doctor. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad is an ophthalmologist. Then, on a Friday, after prayers, guys in the city where those arrests happened, it's called Dada, go out and protest. Security forces come. Protesters throw rocks at them. Security forces start shooting. And four protesters are killed. I know this because of videos like the one you're hearing from that day. And because I know a guy named Ibrahim Abazid, who was there. One of the four guys who was killed was his friend. I, I saw the blood. I saw they are, how they, they, they lose their life. And this is when the cycle starts repeating over and over across Syria. People protest. The regime kills people, people protest more, more people get killed or detained and tortured in detention. Then guys like Ibrahim and his friends eventually get guns and start fighting back. And the Syrian uprising becomes a war. So now, Ben Rhodes. It's early 2012. He's working out of his office in the West Wing. The year before... U.S. and NATO launched airstrikes in Libya. Dictator Muammar Gaddafi was later killed. And by 2012, reporters keep asking what the administration is going to do about Syria.
2: At that point, it was reasonable for people to believe that, well, these people went into Libya, so
0: they'll probably go into Syria. But in Libya, Ben says, the very first military option was clear. Bomb Gaddafi's troops who were traveling on this one road to this one city to kill civilians. In Syria, Bashar al-Assad's forces were killing civilians all over. Like, there was no obvious military plan to stop him.
2: In Syria, it was never like a moment where it was like, if you do X, you will prevent Y.
0: But there was one thing the administration was worried about in Syria.
2: Assad and his regime were sitting on top of an enormous stockpile of Mm -hmm. chemical weapons.
0: And Ben says the biggest fear in the White House was that Assad would use those chemical weapons or give them to Hezbollah. It's this militant group that supported him. Then in the summer of 2012, they get a report that their fear is about to become a reality. Assad is about to use or transfer those weapons. And the administration decides they need to send a message. What we ended up
2: doing is, number one, we wrote and delivered warnings to the Assad regime directly, which was unusual. We didn't usually communicate with them at right. that point, to Iran uh, and to Russia Essentially saying, do not cross this line. You will be held accountable in some fashion for this.
0: They have Obama go out and deliver a speech basically saying the same thing.
1: We will continue to make it clear to Assad and those around him that the world is watching and that they will be held accountable by the international community and the United States should they make the tragic mistake of using those weapons.
2: And the language was carefully chosen to essentially mirror the private messages that we were sending to those governments.
0: So they would know the U.S. takes this very seriously. But the plan was to keep the threat ambiguous. Like, don't say what exactly the U.S. would do. Then, about a month later, Obama is doing a press conference.
1: Jay tells me that you guys have been missing me.
0: (laughs) Chuck Todd, I think, asked a question.
2: Chuck Todd. About chemical weapons use in military action. In particular, whether you envision using U.S. military it's simply for nothing else, the safekeeping of the chemical weapons. And,
0: you're of the- and this time, the language is not carefully chosen. Obama is kind of riffing. Uh,
1: we have been very clear to the Assad regime, but also to other players on the ground that a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, That would change my calculus. That would change my equation.
0: And there it was, for the first time. The red line. It's the same thing he told Syria and Iran and Russia in private, but now it has a name. And let's be clear, at the time, Ben Rhodes believed the U.S. should have already intervened in Syria to stop Assad. Chemical weapons are not. And so to me, it was a sense of, of course, we should do this.
2: But I did think, though, that we had essentially taken a public position that had not been
1: carefully prepared.
0: And then in that same press conference, Obama repeats it.
1: That's a red line for us.
0: And adds a threat of force.
1: There would be enormous consequences if we start seeing movement on the chemical weapons front uh, or the use of chemical weapons, that would uh, that would change my calculations uh, significantly. So, all right, thank you, everybody.
0: The press conference ends, and reporters really start homing in on this red line statement.
1: Now
2: there was a direct association between a Syrian use of chemical weapons, and a military response by the United States.
0: President Obama issues a stern warning to Syria. He has
2: firmly stated that the threat of chemical or biological warfare in Syria is what he called a red line. He mentioned the possibility of military action for the first time.
0: And Obama's riff becomes doctrine. So that was the summer of 2012. Then, August 21st, 2013.
2: So I was sitting on a plane with my wife waiting to take off for the first vacation that we'd had in years. Um, And literally it's taxing to the tarmac. And I started to get all these reports.
0: Some simply horrific images are coming out of Syria. Uh, What you're going to look at is the immediate aftermath of an alleged chemical attack by the Syrian government. Activists are calling it a chemical
1: massacre. They say government forces fired rockets with toxic agents.
0: The grisly images posted to YouTube Wednesday showed men, women, and children
1: either dying or already dead. Showing the bodies of, of lifeless children, of doctors trying to desperately resuscitate others. Hundreds reportedly were killed.
2: These were reports from people who I knew, knew what they were talking about.
1: If these reports are true, it has serious implications for the United States. The Obama administration has said the use of chemical weapons would cross a red line. So, what happens now?
2: You could immediately tell this was a much bigger event than anything we'd seen. The
0: National Security Council calls a meeting.
2: And so I had this strange experience of kind of leaving my family, driving out to this FBI field office, parking in an empty parking lot, Two really annoyed looking guys <laughs> let me in because they're working on a weekend. And Ben patches in on a secure video link. And what really impressed me in that meeting is Marty Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, look, I have told you before that you
0: shouldn't intervene. Because up until now, Ben says, Dempsey thought intervening in Syria would lead the U.S. down a slippery slope. With no clear end in sight.
2: But this event is big enough that I think we have to do something just to register. Just to do something. Just to do something.
0: As they went around the room, most people agreed it was time to take action. And Ben says it seemed like Obama was leaning toward it too. But there was a problem.
2: Obama got very focused on the fact that there was a UN team on the ground in Syria. He was going to go to collect samples. For an investigation, and Obama kept saying, Can we get them out of there? And he really was pressing on this. Like, we got to do everything we can to get that team out. So his body language, he didn't say, I'm ordering a strike. He did say, I'm ordering you to prepare this set of options to position military assets there. And, and so the the feeling in the room, you know, or by video conference at least, was entirely like, We're going to do this.
0: What were you thinking?
2: I was incredibly Energized, And as awful as the event was, I was thinking, well, we're now finally going to do something about this. And I'm pacing back and forth in this parking lot in Oregon, you know, mapping out essentially the, the plan to rule out the
0: war. And I think it's important to say to people, like, getting energized about, like, an airstrike is, is no, weird. I, but the point is, yeah. like, for me at least, it was like, finally... Somebody's going to let this guy know that he can't kill yeah. his own people anymore.
2: Yes, as, as awful as it is to be energized by the prospect of, of war, it felt like this is it. This is the moment. So let's do this as well as we can.
0: Ben Rhodes was clearly pro intervention. And if it sounds like I was too, I was. I mean, I'm a reporter, so it's not my job to promote a policy. And I did not do that in my reporting. But at this point, I had gone into Syria several times. I had spent the night in a school where a bunch of families were living because their houses had been bombed to dust. I heard warplanes flying over that school at night. I heard moms tell little kids, don't worry, go to sleep. The bombs won't come tonight. Everywhere I went, people would ask me, why isn't your country doing something to help us? One woman who was living under a tree asked me, why are Libyan babies more important than Syrian babies? I never had answers to these questions. And yeah, that got to me. In Washington, Ben was watching all of this from the White House videos and pictures posted by Syrian activists. And Ben and other people in the White House believed in this idea called the responsibility to protect. An idea that countries have a right to act on other countries if those other countries are committing mass atrocities. So it's August 26th, 2013.
2: And so we're waiting outside the Oval Office. And Jim Clopper's there, the DNI. Director of National Intelligence. And he looked kind of unusually agitated, Um, and he kind of volunteers that it's not a slam dunk that Assad ordered this chemical weapons attack. And I immediately thought,
0: well, this is weird. Um, Why say slam dunk? Because slam dunk, of course, is the same phrase George Tenet, the former head of the CIA, used to describe his certainty that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction.
2: And that caused grave damage to the reputation of the CIA, both because that was wrong, but also because after the Iraq war went bad,
0: the Bush people kind of blamed Tenet. So in this moment, Clapper tells Ben that evidence of a chemical attack in Syria is not a slam dunk because it hasn't been fully verified yet on the ground. Then they go into the Oval Office, and Clapper tells Obama he has high confidence chemical weapons were used, And that Assad was responsible.
2: But then he paused and he said, you know, but but it's not a slam dunk.
0: And, And he even did air quotes when he said it. And Obama says to Clapper, Jim, no one asked you if it was a slam dunk, according to Ben. Clapper told us he doesn't remember this exchange, but says it totally could have happened. And Ben says it was at this point he realized just how much this was all about avoiding the mistakes That were made in Iraq.
2: Everybody. Overlearned lessons from Iraq. Overlearned or learned, depending on your perspective. But the intelligence community was the first out of the gate to basically say, we're not playing the part that we played in Iraq.
0: Right. You're right. I felt the burden in Obama. He had to respond to this awful event in Syria while bearing the additional weight of the war in Iraq which caused his own intelligence community to be cautious, his military to be wary of a slippery slope, his closest allies to distrust U.S.-led military adventures in the Middle East, the press to be more skeptical of presidential statements, the public to oppose U.S. wars overseas, yeah. and Congress to see matters of war and peace as political issues to be exploited. Yeah. Like, that is the legacy of Iraq.
2: Yeah, right there. And, you know, like to me, that paragraph is not, like, self-pity or or, or even analysis. Like... That is the world that we
0: lived that week. Still, things keep moving. The military starts drawing up plans. But that U.N. team is still on the ground. So Obama's like, look, I'm just going to call Ban Ki-moon myself. So Obama calls the U.N. Secretary General. Ben's there with him. And Obama tells Ban Ki-moon, you really have to get your people out. And Ban Ki-moon is like... But we have to verify that this was, in fact, a sarin gas attack.
2: And Obama, I just remember, keeps saying, I cannot stress to you how important it is that they get out. Um, and again, the only reason you would want them to leave is if you were going to bomb Syria.
0: That phone call was on a Monday, and Ban Ki moon's team stays in Syria for a few more days. And in those days, a lot happens.
2: What's interesting to look back on this whole episode is a series of factors converge over the course of the week that ultimately change Obama's calculus. If that U.N. team was out, he might have bombed Syria on Monday or Tuesday. I'm utterly convinced of that.
1: Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide to address inequality in all its forms. Learn more at FordFoundation.org. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. In those few
0: days yeah. that you're waiting for the UN team to leave, a bunch of other stuff happens. Yes. Um, and the first one is, according to your book, Obama calls Angela Merkel. Yes. So Just first talk about their relationship a little bit too, yeah. you know, leading up to this.
2: There was no foreign leader that Obama liked and respected more than Angela Merkel. They didn't always see it eye to eye, um, but she was, like, tough, pragmatic, but values-driven,
0: and was really the leader of Europe. So Obama wants Merkel to say she supports U.S. military action
2: in Syria. Because if Angela Merkel embraced taking military action, you know, that would kind of signal that Europe was
0: on board. They wanted Europe on board because they knew they wouldn't get approval from the U.N. Security Council. Russia would veto it. So Obama gets her on the phone and asks for her support if the U.S. bombs Syria, but... She says,
2: uh, no, I can't offer my support because I believe that essentially there has to be a process wherein we gather samples, we take them back, the U.N. makes a determination of whether chemical weapons were used, we debate it in the Security Council, and then, and only then, we can say, well, we tried to do things by the book. And if that fails, then, yes, then I might support you, Barack.
0: Obama was like, that's going to take too long. And in that time, I might lose support for this. Also, he tells her, it's a moral issue. These kids were gassed to death. And there was kind of
2: this pause, waiting for a response. And I remember sitting there, and she says, look, I I believe that we have to go through the process. And she ended it by saying, this I tell you as a friend, Barack. Like, I don't want you to be out on the limb.
0: Like, if you go this alone, Vladimir Putin is going to say this chemical attack was made up or that the Syrian opposition did it or that terrorists did it. If you go through the process, she says,
2: it'll be more credible. And I remember he looked, he hung up the phone, and it was the first time since the attack where he looked kind of unsettled. I don't want to say nervous, but unsettled. That was the first moment where I thought, maybe... Maybe we won't do this.
0: So then come the Republicans. Yeah. And it comes in a form of a letter from House Speaker John Boehner. Yeah. Which asks all these questions about a military strike on Syria.
2: Fourteen
0: incredibly detailed questions. Like, if potential strikes do not have the intended effect, will further strikes be conducted? The kinds of hard questions Ben Rhodes says people in the administration were already asking themselves.
2: The most important point he makes in the letter is essentially that you don't have constitutional authority to act. If you do this, it's illegal. And if any of these bad things happen, you are responsible.
0: Ben says this all went back to Libya. Back then, Republicans and some Democrats criticized Obama for not getting authorization from Congress for airstrikes. And by this point, there was a lot of criticism of Obama as an executive out of control.
2: And Obama said to some of us in the Oval Office,
0: like, they're laying the groundwork for impeachment. Democrats controlled the Senate. But Ben says Obama saw this letter from House Republicans as a legitimate threat. And while all this was happening... Order! Order! The British House of Commons votes on whether to support military action... In Syria.
2: The eyes to the right, 272. The nose to the left, 285. Yeah! And the nose have it. We just lost our closest ally in the world from joining us. And that was the moment when I started to be, like, really uncertain about what was going to happen. In a matter of three days, a political crisis had engulfed us that I really just didn't see coming.
0: Still, inside the administration, the plan to bomb Syria is going forward. Secretary of State John Kerry goes out and makes a big speech denouncing Bashar al-Assad, basically making the case for a strike.
1: Some cite the risk of doing things. But we need to ask, what is the risk of doing nothing? Ben
0: says staffers start to talk about how Obama will announce the bombing, a primetime speech or not. And then Obama goes for a walk with his chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, who was against intervention. After that, Ben and some others get called to the Oval Office. And I walk up there and
2: I was the first guy in the, in the room and Obama's sitting behind the desk. And he says to me, you know, I've got a big idea. And I remember just being like, well, you're the big idea guy, you know. Um, And he says, uh, I've decided to go seek congressional authorization for acting in Syria.
0: Like that thing the Republicans are preemptively accusing me of not doing? I'm going to do it. One of the biggest criticisms of Obama was that when he was campaigning in 2007, he told the Boston Globe, quote, The president does not have power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve stopping an actual or imminent threat to the nation, unquote. So on that day in the Oval Office, Obama reminds Ben and others about that quote.
2: And he's like, I agree with that guy. Like, that's what I believe. I'm that guy. Like, I I believe in international law and, and constitutional law. And he's like, we can't keep going into wars in Middle Eastern countries this way. Like, there's too much power in the presidency. I'm trying to show that I mean what I say, that in a democracy, like, we all have
0: to be behind these decisions. So they go around the room and nearly everybody's like, all right, let's ask Congress. Vice President Joe Biden says Congress will support Obama. They'll be there for you on this, he says.
2: The only person who didn't think he would get get the support from Congress was Susan Rice.
0: National Security Advisor. Which I have
2: to say, um, and it was interesting because I want to put this in the most delicate way possible. I think as an African American, like Susan saw the nature of the opposition to him in a way that was different from Biden. In that Biden was like, well, these guys are always hard on you, but but on something like this, They'll be there. And Susan's like, yeah,
0: you know they'll never be there. We contacted Susan Rice about this, but she declined to comment. So then the White House team starts what Ben calls a full court press to get the votes in Congress. Boehner says he supports it personally, but won't help whip any votes. The administration realizes the House is a lost cause, They push for a resolution by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but it starts to look like they won't be able to get enough votes in the full Senate. Then Obama, Ben and the team go to a G20 summit in Russia. And on the flight home, Obama tells Ben something surprising. Obama says he talked to Putin and suggested that the U.S. and Russia destroy Syria's chemical weapons, and Putin agreed. Four days later, the Syrian government also agrees, which means the U.S. will not bomb Syria. —
1: My fellow Americans. — And then... — Tonight I want to talk to you about Syria. — Obama announces the plan to destroy the chemical weapons. — In part because of the credible threat of U.S. military action, as well as constructive talks that I had with President Putin, The Russian government has indicated a willingness to join with the international community in pushing Assad to give up his chemical weapons. The Assad regime has now admitted that it has these weapons, and even said they joined the Chemical Weapons Convention, which prohibits their use.
0: The U.S. and the U.N. eventually remove 1,300 tons of chemical weapons and destroy them. Experts say that's more than any U.S. airstrikes could have accomplished. But for so many Syrians, it's heartbreaking. Like, look, Assad got away with it again. He destroys some chemical weapons, and the international community
1: leaves him alone to keep bombing his own people. America's not the world's policeman. Terrible things happen across the globe, and it is beyond our means to right every wrong. But when, with modest effort and risk, we can stop children from being gassed to death and thereby make our own children safer over the long run, I believe we should act.
0: The big question I had at the time and the question I asked Ben Rhodes was, did Obama know deep down that he wouldn't get support from Congress? Like, Congress was kind of his out. This is what a lot of reporters thought at the time. Ben says he did not ask Obama that question. He says to ask it would imply that he didn't believe Obama really wanted to get congressional authorization. And he did believe him. But also, there's a different question that you could have asked, right? was like, which one was your preference? Like, do you want to go to war in Syria or not? And you didn't ask that question? I didn't ask that, and I think
2: think his preference was to not go to war in Syria.
0: The first time I heard the name Ben Rhodes was actually in 2012, a year before all this happened. He had invited a group of journalists who covered the Middle East to go to the White House and talk to Obama about Syria. I was one of those journalists, but I didn't go. NPR doesn't allow its reporters to advise the government, but Ben and I did keep in touch as reporter and source. What I didn't know at the time, and what I know now because of the book, is Ben called this meeting to convince Obama to intervene in Syria.
2: I wanted him to walk into that meeting, hear this kind of unvarnished view of how bad things were and how much people wanted the United States to be doing more, and walk out of that meeting somewhat more inclined to do something.
0: So the journalists sit at the table with Obama and talk about how bad the situation is in Syria. But instead of convincing Obama to intervene, the meeting does the opposite. It makes him more inclined to stay out of Syria. This is what Ben writes in his book. And when I read it, I kind of freak out. Because I can't help thinking, as crazy as it might sound, what if I had been there? Do you know the stories I could have told that guy? What if I would have showed him one picture or told him about one thing? I'm not saying I would have told Obama to bomb Syria. I just would have told him what I saw there. Ben's like, honestly, it wouldn't have mattered. Where I had
2: heard a call to action, he had heard a call to not go there. Like, he had heard a reaffirmation of his fear that this is so complex, it is such a mess, There's proxy wars taking place, sectarian wars taking place, there are extremists taking root, that, like, we can't fix this place.
0: It's not enough to say you care, Obama told Ben. Still, Ben kept trying to convince Obama to do something in Syria, until, of course, the August 2013 chemical attack, when U.S. intervention almost happened but didn't happen. I asked Ben how he felt after that was all over.
2: I remember just going in my office and sitting there and, like, opening a beer, feeling like, that's it. You know, this is not going to work out the way, you know, I hoped it would. And I don't know what I can do about that. Like, I'm sitting in the most powerful building in the world. And I got um, nothing. And I got nothing here.
0: The Arab Spring was over.
2: This thing that had filled me with so much hope was was not going to end well.
0: Welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah. The club of people who thought they could change stuff, but realized they didn't have the juice. For me, it has meant years of guilt that I just couldn't do better for all the incredible Syrians I met who simply did not deserve to be bombed by their own government that I wasn't Christiane Amanpour, whose reporting on the war in the Balkans led to airstrikes, which led to a peace deal. For Ben, it meant eventually changing what he believed, to come to think more like Obama. A lot of times, U.S. intervention does not make things better. So Ben stopped going to meetings about Syria.
2: I had, I had no answers. I just had no... I ran out of, of, of things to say.
0: Instead, he writes, he started focusing on things that could work, supporting the removal of unexploded ordnance in Laos, a country that was bombed by the U.S. and not made better by it. My fellow Americans. The craziest thing is that after all of this, all this deliberation and back and forth in 2012 and 2013.
2: Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad. In
0: 2017, Assad does it again.
2: Launched a horrible chemical weapons attack
1: on innocent civilians.
0: He clearly still has access to chemical weapons. And the U.S. just... Bomb Syria. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike
2: on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched.
0: Congress does not put up a fight. China and Russia formally object, but the majority of countries support it. The bombs hit an airbase in Syria. They destroy some Syrian airplanes and some infrastructure. But Bashar al-Assad stays in power. And in 2018, he uses chemical weapons on civilians. Again. Before we get to the credits, I just want to be clear. It's not like the only military options for the Obama administration were to do nothing or to launch airstrikes that would eventually lead down a slippery slope into a much bigger war. The U.S. did provide military support for the rebels in Syria, and eventually put troops in Syria to fight ISIS. We should also say we reached out to Obama to comment on this episode, but through a spokesperson, he declined. Ben did tell me Obama has read the book. This episode was written by me, produced by Tom Dreisbach, and edited by Lisa Pollack. We had editing help from Chris Benderev, Neil Carruth, Phil Ewing, Neva Grant, Mark Mehmet, and Noor Wazwaz. Fact-checking was by Greta Pittenger. Our theme song is by Colin Wamsgans. Other original music is by Ramtin Arablouei. Embedded is executive produced by me, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grundman. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at NPR Embedded. Subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Okay, that's it. We'll be back soon with more.